You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. Davenport podcast where we talk about retro and horror sci-fi television. My name is Allison and my co-hosts are Drew. Hi. Andy. Hello. And Val. Hi. For this episode we're going to take you on a special trip to the uncanny valley in the twilight zone. Yeah we're going to talk about Four episodes. We're going to go full spoilers for these episodes, which are currently available on multiple streaming platforms with a subscription. Think Netflix, Hulu, that it's kind of thing. usually pretty easy to find the Twilight um, Zone. But I wanted... All of these episodes have... Well, most of them have some kind of twist element or some type of thing where it would be ruined if we spoil it for you and you've never seen it. I highly recommend watching these episodes first and since we didn't mention what episodes we were going to cover in the last episode I'm just going to read them off right now so people can if they want to pause the podcast go check those out and then come back for our discussion so we will be talking about uh, the season one episode 34 the after hours we will also be talking about season two episode eight the lateness of the hour season three Episode 33, The Dummy, and Season 5, Episode 6, Living Doll. So we will also post this on our show notes, a list of what we're covering on our um, home site, thehauntedavenport.com, just so that you can refer to that and make sure that you've had the full option to see see what we're going to talk about before it's spoiled heavily Because right. if you... you actually have never heard of any of this um and you have the rare luxury of coming in a blank slate to twilight zone episodes like that's one of the best things ever is to like not know anything about what's coming up in a twilight zone episode because they're always so twisted and great oh they they really are and i are like hallmarks of the of the series too yeah and i i would like to interject here also that uh we will be mentioning some things that are related to some of the topics in these episodes so be sure to check our show notes for things that may be related that may be spoiled in this as well i don't want it to i don't want to ruin any movies that people may or may not have seen or any other shows or anything like that so just be sure to give a peek over there um you know because talk about so many things were inspired by the twilight zone yeah, well, and, and these episodes especially, I was watching this and I was like, gosh, this is a whole like this and that. And wow, this is kind of like this that they did. And it's, oh, it's yeah. great. Yeah. So the reason 
why we're taking a trip to the uncanny valley region of the twilight zone is because these episodes all have an uncanny valley element to them and in case that's a a term that people aren't familiar with i thought we'd talk about that a little bit which as as far as i can understand it it seems like it's a description of um an idea that the degree of an object's resemblance to a human being has an effect on how we respond emotionally to that object. So basically, um, when we create objects that have like a humanoid appearance, like say like a puppet or a doll or a robot, we tend to respond emotionally when things have human-like characteristics to a certain degree, but then there's the valley refers to the point that there's this dip where when things get a little bit too close but aren't quite close enough, it starts to have this creep factor. Um, like, I think a really good contrast for this would be, I think a lot of people really like the character design for the character Wally. There he's this, you know, he's got, you know, kind of expressiveness with his little robotic eyes and how he moves and responds to things. But then you see something like, the movie Polar Express, where you have this digital animation that's just, it's not meant to be creepy, it's meant to be this kid's Christmas story, but it's terrifying. <laughs> or like the, um, another good recent example would be the um, CG used in the recent production of Cats, like that. Yeah, or uh, or the, the new Star Wars with Peter Cushing. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, or the, the one with the Princess Leia's face in it, and it's, mm-hmm. it, oh, good and- lord. <laughs> And also this applies heavily to, you know, the development of robotics, too, because um, people tend to bond and interact and also anthropomorphize objects that they interact with that have any kind of like humanistic characteristic. But then they make these hyper realistic, you know, dolls and robots for like, you know, it might be like a sex doll or some kind of like therapy doll or whatever. And they, they try to talk and move and it's close, but just different enough that your brain knows it's kind of an imposter and so it feels very threatening Mm -hmm. yeah and it's um this is a semi-related factoid but did you know that uh humans will perceive robots that are humanoid in form as being more intelligent and more capable than robots that are not humanoid in form that makes sense yeah, we just like we, you know, if you took we the exact same computer and put it in a little movable Android body like C-3PO and put that same computer in just like a cube, um, we would assume, <laughs> yeah, we would assume the C-3PO would be smarter because it looks like us and we're obviously very smart. That is so silly. Human brains are <laughs> I, I, so silly. I know. Human brains are the, some of the goofiest things. I, well, I, I love We them. all know that R2-D2 is way smarter than C-3PO. Of totally. course. Despite looking mostly like a trash can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one thing. And uh, drink for Star Wars reference there. There you saying. go. Yeah. Hey, right we got off the one bat. in. Yeah. Um, I did a little bit of digging, and it, and most of my research was based from Wikipedia. So forgive me if it's incorrect, but um, I, I read that this concept was first identified by a robotics professor named Masahiro Mori. And this came out, this idea came out in 1970. And not everybody agrees with it, but I just, I feel like instinctually that ever since I heard the term, I was like, oh yeah, I get exactly what that means. Like I can't describe when it happens, but I know when it does. Yeah, Um, exactly. And so uh, I also want to recommend there is a short documentary about this subject that I think 
was initially going to be part of a larger series. I'm not clear on that, but um, this show called Primal Screen came out on the Shutter channel, um, which we highly recommend as a streaming subs- subscription service if you like horror. Um, no, they, they don't give us money. And this is a, no, they nobody gives us money. But if you want to <laughs> give us, no, no, stop, no. <laughs> We don't don't even have a Patreon page. We are we are grassroots. What would we give the people? What could we incentivize them with? (laughs) Exactly. Do you want to hear us make fun of Rob Schneider's career? We can do that for you. Because we were doing that earlier. (laughs) (laughs) Not part of the show. I thought we weren't gonna add that in. (laughs) We're mean mean people. I'm sorry. Um yeah, so anyway, back to so Rodney Asher is a is a document documentary filmmaker I was gonna say documentarian and sound really pompous um he is well known for his documentary on the shining called room uh, 327 um or is it 237 oh. 327 anyway uh and also the nightmare which is a really creepy one about sleep paralysis <clears throat> so this is a short like 27 minute long little thing that he put together for shutter and it's excellent, and it, it explores this in depth, but it also has a lot of stories about kids who grew up in the 70s who were traumatized by the trailer for the film Magic from 1978, which features a very creepy ventriloquist dummy and a very disturbed man. So, mm-hmm. um, A very creepy Anthony Hopkins. Yes, yes. So I recommend, I'll put a, um, you know, you'll, you'll need to have a, a Shutter subscription to check it out. But I'll put a link to the preview where you can see if that's something you want to you want to investigate, and you can do a, a free trial through Shutter if that's something you want to check out, and it's something we definitely recommend. So, Val, didn't you just recently get Shutter? I did. I, I my roommate and I recently we started out with a seven day free trial of Shutter, which is something they offer all the time, so that we could watch the TV show A Discovery of Witches. And then I forgot to cancel it, so now I have Shutter. Yeah, I, I actually also recently signed up for it because that is the only place that they had the uh, new Nicolas Cage vehicle, The Color Out of Space. Oh, and, MG. Yeah, and, yes. and, and boy, howdy, if you are a fan of either Nicolas Cage or H.P. Lovecraft, I can tell you, finally, finally, somebody got it right. It on, was so good. Yeah, on, on adapting like his literature. We saw, yeah. saw it in the theater right before things shut down, which was a super treat and like, yeah it was it visually it is just fantastic it keeps pretty close to the lore and the tone it's creepy it's ah it's it's great and not to knock on anything like reanimator because i love reanimator but it's you know it is not what you know doesn't keep the tone well and richard stanley who directed that it was great to see him make a comeback and he is planning on doing more. So I think the Dunwich yeah, Horror I, is coming down the pike. Yeah, yes. he said oh, he was please. wanting to do Dunwich Horror. Yeah, I, I'm Dude, here for which it. Would be awesome. Nicholas Cage is on like a weird trajectory that I believe started with like Mandy yeah. a couple of years ago. Yeah. And he's <laughs> in like a, there's like a movie with him coming out. I think I saw a trailer for it on Hulu or something. And it kind of looks like the plot of Five Nights at Freddy's, yes. which is a popular traumatizing video game for children. It's um, a jump scare by children, game. I mean like teens. <laughs> yeah. Oh, shout, shout out to our good friend Crystal's little girl Asha, who Ooh, is a big no. fan of that. Yes, Wait, it's horrifying. Asha plays Five Nights at no, Freddy's. No, she watches gameplay of it. Like oh, she's she's okay. she's really young, so she's still I, she's still just kind of like 
checking out the gameplay and stuff. She isn't playing it herself, but she she likes the concept and likes the creepiness. So, so yeah, like I saw a trailer for that movie and I was like, I'm just going to nope right out of that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I want to see it, actually. I was like, ooh, this, this looks fun. I just got around to watching the very first Hellraiser movie. Um, so like, that's where I'm, that's where I'm at with like my level of horror intake. I feel like like so finally far enough removed. Five Nights at Freddy's, Five Five Nights at Freddy's, or also this, I'm blanking on the name of the Nicolas Cage movie that seems like it kind of rips off that concept. It also deals with Uncanny Valley. So if you enjoy that sensation, then those are things to check out. Yeah. I can't remember. Does anyone remember what the name of the Nicolas Cage movie is called? That just came out that has this. Look it up real quick. I I don't off the top of my head. Um, I feel like Nicolas Cage has been going on that trajectory for a long time though, because I mean, like a lot. He yeah, he made some strange Disney movies, and now it's like now we're seeing something else. Oh man, he is going to be Joe Exotic in the Untitled Joe Exotic Project. (laughs) So we have that to look for. No. Oh no. Oh, it's called Willy's Wonderland. Oh, that sounds like a scary low budget porno. But anyway, <laughs> and hopefully it will be at some point. Oh, yeah. You know, there's going to be some kind of like oh, weird God. costumed animals. Oh, God. Oh, man. <laughs> Moving right along. Do we have a drinking game for whenever someone says something raunchy and inappropriate? <laughs> uh, we can make one for um, references to Nick Cage because I feel like I can't stop talking about him. Right. Yeah. The bees. (laughs) So. So back to Twilight Zone. Back to the Twilight Zone. We haven't actually started talking about yet. It's going to be so good, though, guys. It is. So good. So (laughs) let's talk about the very first episode that we're covering from season one, episode 34, The After Hours, which originally aired June 10th, 1960, written by Rod Serling, directed by Douglas Hayes. And it's got some scary mannequins. Let's talk about let's talk about this episode. So, um, if I want to give a synopsis, Andy. Sure, sure. So basically, there is a woman in a department store, and everybody's being real fucking creepy towards her. Um, and she's having a hard time figuring out what's going on. And bomb, Andy. (laughs) Yeah, sorry, sorry. Am I not supposed to do that? It's part of the drinking game. I think I think the uh, the podcast authorities that be that like say you're family friendly. I think you're allowed a certain number of swears. Okay, well I'll maybe I'll I'll try to default I'll try to default back to Frick. But man, people were just (laughs) I was so put off by how everybody in this episode was treating this poor woman, and she's just trying to get some help in this department store. Okay, I'm sorry. She's going to buy a thimble at a department store. (laughs) Lady, go away. She saw in an ad. There was just, there was an ad for the thimble. So wait, before we get actually further into this, have both of you, did you know it was coming up in this, or were you going in blind? No, I, this is actually one of the first episodes I ever remember seeing. Um, Same. Yeah, this is, I definitely caught this on one of the midnight New Year's Eve runs uh, long, long time ago. And I remember it, it just blowing away the ending. 
Uh, so yeah, yeah I, I knew what was coming, but the uh, the details were kind of vague because I haven't seen the episode in a while. I didn't remember most of it, but I knew the premise, which is kind of how I am with like, I think all of season one of The Twilight Zone I have seen because of that sci-fi channel New Year's Eve marathon every year. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the the details of it, like her looking for the thimble and her talking to the store manager and like the other, you know, the other people she interacts with in the department store. Um, I didn't remember the the nuances of her of her experience. Yeah, I forgot about the kooky floor manager. Yeah, like not the oh, man. manager manager, but the floor manager guy. Oh, he, that, like, he is so expressive. I love that guy. <laughs> he tells one of the shop girls, "Make you're gonna make a hundred dollars in sales today." Yep. <laughs> is your powder dry? Hmm. Well, it'll sell. <laughs> so good. Yeah. So. So the the main character is named Marsha White, and she goes into this into this department store looking for the thimble that we discussed, and she ends up going on an elevator that's not really open to the public, and ends up on the ninth floor of this building, which looks abandoned, except for you know there's like some old shop fixtures there and stuff, and there's one salesperson up there. And all they have for sale is the very thimble that she was looking for. Oh, no. She's, she's very weirded out. I mean, that's strange enough. And I remember as a kid seeing this, the idea that you could get on an elevator and end up on a wrong floor and no one is there was already really creepy to me as a child. And then um, it progresses to where she she gets back down to the main floor after having this very strange encounter. And she tries to describe it to the manager and tries to return the thimble because she discovers that it's damaged. And they're basically all saying to her, no, there's no ninth floor. We don't sell anything up there. We know thimbles are sold in such and such department and you can make a return there. And I think um, it just kind of escalates where she's getting more and more upset because no one's taking her seriously or listening to her. And then she sees the woman that sold her the thimble down on the main floor as a mannequin oh. and, and then i think she faints because she ends yeah. up being she ends up waking up on a couch in um like the manager's office and the whole place is closed down so she got shut into the store yeah because of a distracted sales clerk and then she as that was she's, supposed to be waking her up and getting her out yeah as she's trying to escape all the mannequins start talking to her and some of them move an arm and reach out. And I'm not really sure if I already was concerned that mannequins would do this or if this planted the idea in my head that mannequins could do this because it was so long ago. It's kind of a chicken and the egg situation, but I definitely for a sustained period of my childhood did not trust mannequins, did not want to be near them, would try to like, you know, keep my distance and was afraid that at any moment one of them would reach out and try to touch me. And there was a, I think I mentioned this in our very first, you know, our, our first episode where we talk about childhood television trauma, where we did, when we had Chris with us and we started the podcast a few years back, seems like mm-hmm. ages ago. Um, this is, we talked about this being one of the scary episodes that, that traumatized us as kids. But I went into, there was a store opening in the town we grew up in and um our dad and uh my stepmom andy and val's mom 
went to this, you know, it was like, oh, we got to go celebrate the new opening of like Kaufman's department store or whatever. And for the opening night, it was kind of popular at the time to have live mannequins, but they would pose like they were mannequins, like they were supposed to hold perfectly still. So it's kind of like when you see street performers now where they do the statue routine, which is always kind of fun, but probably terrifying to children. Um, They were up on these platforms, just like, you know, an actual mannequin would be and all made up and everything. And then they would move occasionally. And because I was like one of the few kids surrounded by adults, they would hone in on me and they would like wink at me or wave to me. And they probably thought they were being cute or nice, but I'd already seen this episode and I was already traumatized and it was just like (laughs) driving it up to a whole new level. And I just logically in my brain, I was like, I know those are just humans. I know those are actors. God, don't look at me. Don't make, don't make eye contact. Don't, don't try to touch me. I was also very much into stranger danger at that point too. So like a stranger pretending to be a mannequin was so suspect in my child brain. Anyway, as it should. <laughs> anyway, so this is like, this is pretty disturbing. And as an adult, I watch it and I think, well, that would be upsetting. But I really like what we learn. I think is very intriguing. And so we want to like get into the twist of right. Why the well, mannequins are talking to Marshall White. Real quick, before we get into the twist, is like when they spin the woman mannequin around that was her sales clerk. Mm-hmm. It's like the face. Oh, it looks, looks just like, like her. She's yeah. just holding still, but it's like she's holding way more still than you could hold still. And I, what I read was that they actually took casts of certain actors and actresses' faces. That for some of the mannequins, some of the mannequins that you see were like classic are just classic mannequins. Yeah. Yeah. But like the people that had the most lines that also ended up being mannequins, they took casts of their faces and then painted them so that they're like perfect renditions of them. Oh, that's they look great! So much like the actresses, right? Yeah, so like, beautiful. It sells it so much. Yeah, so what what ends up happening is it turns out that Marsha White is also a mannequin and that oh. she forgot. And I'll mention, she is, she's played by Anne Fran- actress Anne Francis. And she has a very model-esque, like, especially, like, 60s model quality <coughs> to her, like, the way she, her, she's dressed and her appearance. And so, um, and she had been permitted to go be a human for a month they take they each take turns and everybody gets to go for a month and go be out in the human world and live like a human and she managed to forget her original life as a mannequin and it's somebody else's turn in fact the woman who sells her the thimble it's her turn and so they're frustrated and grumpy at her because she's overstayed her time outside and, you know, they have rules. There's a, there's a little mannequin society. <laughs> right. And they don't elaborate on how this all developed. It's just that's that's how it is in this. But she's a couple days overdue. And that means she's losing a couple of days. That's well, right. it's kind of an interesting Cutting concept. my vacation time, man. Exactly. Yeah. Kind of a dick move. <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely like, or like, you know, if you're working and you have to take lunches at different times and your coworker takes an overlong lunch. Oh, yeah, if you're running somebody's break and they're like, (laughs) I'm just going to take a quick 10 to smoke and then, like, 20 minutes later, you're like, where the hell is this person? Right, (laughs) right. So so it's understandable. And so then the mannequins, 
actually, the other mannequins aren't, you realize that they're not malicious or creepy at all. They're just trying to get her attention and snap her back to reality. And once she realizes what's happening, then they're no longer threatening. Like, that's her community. And we're, we're treated to the next day, um, the floor manager that we mentioned, who's, you know, bustling around and checking to make sure everything's ready for the day, happens to pass by Marsha White on a stand in the clothing she was wearing the day before as a mannequin. And it is like the spitting image of her, the mannequin that they put up there. It's I'm trying to remember, does it end in a freeze frame of his, like, take it, on it, it or is it just in on her i think oh, yeah, yeah that's it on, because he um i actually really like his face here because he looks at the camera but without like wink wink nudge nudge breaking the fourth wall looking at the camera yeah. and he's got this expression on his face like what what the and you see whatever. her behind him it's a really great shot it, it is wonderful yeah um if i can find a still of that i will post it in the show notes i don't know if i'll be able to to capture that exact moment but i'll i'll try to share that with everybody just because yeah, it's so it well composed it really is um art man rob serling just makes art well and yeah. the, <laughs> the shots done because they're so far apart but it's also super hyper focused on each of their faces mm-hmm. i think there's a possibility that we're using a technique where you actually have two lenses going into the camera at once so you mm. can actually focus them separately you know what it reminded me of? Remember when we watched um, the Brian De Palma film Blowout with John Travolta where he's sound- recording sound mm-hmm. for movies and he's recording sounds and you see um, you see an owl in the distance at the same time right. as you see him and they're both in focus? Yeah. It's like, no, it's, it's the same technique. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, I love that. They're filming one scene through one camera but with two lenses. And that way you're able to focus on both things in the background and things in the foreground. Now, digitally, it's like you just do a super blown up like panoramic thing and then they just shrink it down and focus in on the two different things at the same time, which I don't know, works, but doesn't work (laughs) as a technical aspect. It doesn't give you the same depth of feel. There's there's a lot more uncanny valley and a lot less soul in I think in a lot of digital filming sure. these days. Well, like actually. they're not purposely doing no. the uncanny valley is what usually happens. Ugh. Um, I did want to mention though when she's first getting scared by all the mannequins coming to life around her, because it's like she has the two mannequins come to life that she's already met as living people but then all the mannequins start churning Mm -hmm. and two of them are dressed up for ski season and they're wearing like (laughs) these apparently in the like late 50s early 60s it was popular (laughs) to have knit ski masks yeah oh those are so creepy those are so that's like the scariest part of the episode for me and i'm so glad you brought it up (laughs) Well, it's like ski masks are creepy enough, but like nowadays ski masks are just like a solid color, you know. It's like they yeah. were trying. Hard and usually, to make them it's scary. like it's a the joke of like the the burglar and the ski mask, you know, is where you see them the most. But like these were like patterned, and like <laughs> apparently, like I went down a weird rabbit hole after that, trying like looking at all these old patterns for ski masks from the 50s and 60s and like people like 
put clown faces on them and oh no it's horrible horrible like if you want nightmare fuel just look up mid-century ski mask (laughs) (laughs) so like even after like she was okay with everything and it's like oh they're all palling around now and they're all like friendly mannequins there was the two ski mask dudes in the background and just like no that's what terrifying. I really like about, like, the, the episode is that it's, like, not, like, there's a tension, but it's not, like, a maliciousness, you know, where it's, like, they're just trying to get her to come back home, basically, from a trip, and then they're, like, do you remember? Do you know who you are? Why you're here? And she's, like, oh, right. I'm a mannequin. I was on vacation. And they're, like, yeah, good job. Welcome home. And she's, like, it's just so weird out there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> just, like, incredibly well, relatable. And that's that's the thing that really stands out to me is like the it it, it is a great bait and switch uh, because you have these mannequins that are frightening this woman. But to me, all the interactions with the humans that she's having are just like they're the, the elevator guy who takes her to the ninth floor. Like he is having none of whatever she's talking about. He's just like, yeah, whatever. Get out of my Why face. does she stand so close to him? Right. And also, wait, he takes her to the ninth floor, so I'm pretty he's sure he's a mannequin. mannequin. Is he? He's a mannequin. He's a mannequin. Yeah. He's one of the mannequins that actually has a cast face. I think oh, he's okay. Frustrated with her. That right. could be it. Because she's yeah. late. Yeah. She's the coworker that, you know, took yeah, an extra 20 minutes on their lunch break. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, I didn't. I makes me want, want lunch. <laughs> I kept an eye out for him, but I didn't see him. So I, guess I think I, he's the one in the sailor outfit. Yeah, he's right? the sailor outfit. Oh, okay. All right then. So the he's sailor outfit is very similar to the the bellhop outfit. Yeah. Yeah, the elevator yeah. operator. I guess I wasn't looking too hard at his face. I was just looking at the outfits. Um. <laughs> he's on. Yeah, he's on the same floor as her. Yeah. Like, you, you see at the end of the episode when she's back on display, he's, like, right next to her, next to, like, I don't know. Like an anchor for some anchor. reason? Yeah, yeah. Like it's like a Bay Rum Cologne thing, I think. Yeah. Because there's, like, a bottle like at the bottom Hugh of it. Hefner. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, and then I, I, I guess that kind of derails my entire train of thought for that but um you know also also the manager she deals with are kind of mean to her and then that the only person that seems to like have actual sympathy for her plight as a as a stranger is that saleswoman but she gets distracted so yeah i don't know well, I mean, you gotta admit all those things are coming off as crazy it's like true. if, if this was a real scenario and someone came up to you and they're like oh yeah i bought this on the ninth floor and you're like we only have eight floors. It's like, oh yeah, like, no. Or up there, and all that was there for sale was this thing. I'm like, okay, cool. Show me the receipt. Well, I paid cash. Uh huh. <laughs> sure, lady. You know, That's... I've actually like had conversations like that with people when I worked at the coffee shop in the public library. Oh yeah. Just like I feel like I've just had that conversation with someone being like, I'm pretty sure you didn't get that here and I don't know how to help you. And they're like, no, no, I got this here. And it's like a beer, just like an open <laughs> beer. I want to return like, this beer. Yeah. You're like, I can't take that from you. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I've had people that like brought food in and then tried to <laughs> take food. They're like, no, I got this from elsewhere. Where I work, it's like a big property of multiple restaurants and bars. Um, and they'll be like, no, I got this from the other one. I'm like, 
Uh, they don't have burritos anywhere on property. I don't. <laughs> like, really? Oh, I, 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 I did. And, like, and also, if they did have burritos and they don't, because I don't know about them. I eat here every day. I would know about them. They wouldn't <laughs> wrap it in tin foil and put it in a this bag that looks suspicious, suspiciously just like, you know, the burrito shop down the street the way they do it. <laughs> yeah. But nice try. Bringing yeah. your burrito in here. <laughs> That's so weird. Don't try pull adult. a burrito over on Drew. He knows where <laughs> all the burritos are. It happens all the time. And it's like, <laughs> it's hilarious because they always, like, you kind of can see it coming. Because, like, there'll be a group of people. And there'll be, like, three or four, couple people in the group. They're like, oh, no, I don't need anything. It's like, oh, you're not eating? Nope. And then, like, the food will come, and then, like, out, they'll have food in front of them suddenly once the food arrives. I got my burrito. <laughs> like, oh, you just wanted me happen. to pretend that I didn't remember not, you know, putting in food for you? <laughs> Anyways, that's a whole different. Yeah, that's different. I, I, I can just hear Vulture Subcheck <laughs> in, my, in my head. Doesn't yelling. anyone care about the rules Doesn't anymore? Any, yeah, I mean, that's the, the non cursing version, right. but yeah. I hear him in my head a lot, like, especially this past year. Yeah, George, George Costanza from Seinfeld has a great line about living in a society, which comes to mind every now and again. That's, We're yeah. living in a society. <laughs> We're living in a society. Is that where that comes from? Because I, I make references to that all the time. We live in a society. Yes, and I that, had no idea that, that a was Seinfeld a Seinfeld thing. reference. Yeah. Wild. <laughs> so, um... So Unless anybody has anything they want to add about this episode, I was going to mention that um, in the 1980s revival version of The Twilight Zone, they did this story again. But instead of the main character being cool with the fact that she's a mannequin, she's actually really upset and wants to be human always and is kind of traumatized to learn that she wasn't really a human. And I think that's definitely a darker version of the story and actually I kind of prefer this little universe where the mannequins just have this thing that they do and everybody's happy about it and you come back and you like the other mannequins and you hang out with them and it's like a fun little mannequin excursion well it's also really refreshing because it's like it's a horror story with a happy ending you know Mm -hmm. it's just a misunderstanding right you know it's like terrifying. It's, you know, a bait and switch where it's like everything's terrifying. And then you realize, oh, it wasn't terrifying. It was just confusing. Yeah. And confusion can be terrifying. It can. Well, it can. Actually, case in point, there is a lot of that in the excellent horror film Jacob's Ladder. I was uh, just going to say, I was just, I didn't want to like spoil Jacob's Ladder for anybody, but there's uh, one no, of my. I'll we'll just put it in the list at the end. One of my, yeah. favorite, <laughs> one of my favorite quotes from all time, from like a mo- movies ever, is one that comes from. Um, this guy who's like a, he's a chiropractor character to Tim Robbins character in it. And he says to him, and I'm, it's been a while since I've seen the movie, so I'm just paraphrasing, but he says, you know, sometimes when, um, you look around you and all you see are, are, are demons, they're really, they seem like they're tearing at everything you care about. They're really angels trying to help you let go and see what is. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's really profound. And I think that really applies to this story actually, but in yeah. a much better way. Yeah, that's that's all I had to add. Totally. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to like steal that from you. No, we no, it's fine. I was just saying that. The, yeah, 
So just like kind of related to the episode, I've never seen the movie Mannequin. Is this anything oh. like that? Um, it yeah. is similar, but very different. Well, and then there's Mannequin 2 busting out. No, mannequin Wait, does she not? Poop. Does she have to, to stay poop. a mannequin? Um. So. No. Full spoilers for the movie Mannequin. Spoilers <laughs> for the movie Mannequin. So she was a princess. Yeah, she's like what? <laughs> yeah, she's a princess that got churned to like wood, and then she was discovered by somebody and sold as a mannequin, and then <laughs> a young man that works at the department store brings her back to life. Yeah, so sort she of. wasn't originally a mannequin. She was right. like an, an enchanted princess kind of story. And it's like lighthearted and fun until you really think about the nuts and bolts of it and the fact that like her entire family is gone and dead now and... <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a very Futurama situation, yeah. I'm trying to remember who's the guy in it. I think it's, it's not a, Sean Astin, no, is it? No, I, I want to say it's... Is it Andrew McCarthy? Oh, I think it... Because it's Kim Cattrall. She's Princess Mannequin. In the first one. In the first one. And I think Andrew, I think Andrew McCarthy is is the guy. The main it guy. It is Andrew it. McCarthy. Yeah. I, I saw one. that at a slumber party as a little girl. And I, I don't think I've watched it in its entirety since. But I remember really liking it as a kid. I was really tempted to actually watch Mannequin 2 just the other day. I'll probably get around to it. On the move. I don't know. I was kind of looking for some... Some dumb fun. That one I think has William Ragsdale from Fright Night in it, but I haven't seen it, so I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't remember. There's somehow like she keeps going back and forth between becoming a mannequin and becoming real again, and it's like blowing everybody's minds, and no one believes what's going on. Or yeah, it's it's a weird <coughs> idea. I mean, yeah. it's like oh, so like, similar, but definitely a very different. Maybe movie. if you kiss enough mannequins, one of them will come to life. Yeah. Making I out. Don't. Let's yeah. Let's let's not endorse this idea during the age of COVID. Let's not go out and kiss yeah, mannequins. Right. Well, <laughs> I don't think you should be encouraging kissing mannequins at any point. No, the, the <laughs> movie the movie Maniac just popped into my head after I said that, so I immediately regret it. <laughs> yeah. Um. Or uh, what is it, Lars and the Real Girl? Never saw that. Well, that's Lake. different because that's he. Yeah. He has, you know, trauma, and so he has, like, a parasocial relationship with a, like, a realistic-ish sex doll, Um, but everyone around him knows that it's a sex doll, and they're just, like, helping him with his, you know, like, whatever he's processing and going through by, like, accepting her into, like, their activities and community to help him build independence from her. Right. And, like, he knows, but he also doesn't know. Like, he knows, but he's, like, in denial. Right, because, you know, Uncanny Valley. This is a weird um, trope for there to be so many references to in our society. Yeah. I think it's something that we're constantly working out because I think think that when we create things in our likeness, it's sort of like a primal way of acting out like being a god or being a creator, you Mm. know? And and I think that there's part of there's part of humanity trying to work out what it means to be human by trying to recreate human qualities in objects or things that we create that are, you know, an automaton or something. Right. Um, like Pygmalion and Galatea. I was just going to mention Pygmalion. I, 
Pygmalion is like something I reference all the time. And I feel like it's just lost on people. <laughs> okay, so is that the story that was... I always thought that was the story that was the inspiration for My Fair Lady. It My is. Lady. Okay. I've never actually read the original story. I've just seen My Fair but yes, Lady. So. Pygmalion's a sculpture, okay. or a sculptor, and he sculpts a, a sculpture of a woman, and he falls in love with her, okay. um, and she comes to life uh, right. because... Aphrodite brings her to life but it's like this whole the whole idea behind it and the My Fair Lady take on it is that like he only loves her because she resembles him in some way or reflects like his ability to mold something right he is he is not he is not sculpting with clay but he is trying to take an actual human being with an identity and a personality and sculpt that person in a way exactly yeah. um which yeah. is really so that's the with Henry Higgins yeah. <laughs> um, I was also gonna mention, um, if you're if you're a fan of, of anime at all, there's the second ghost in the shell movie called Innocence. There's yeah. a couple different there's a lot of ghosts in the shell out there and ghosts in the shell universe, but Innocence actually specifically deals with the idea of really realistic dolls and it's it's <clears throat> a movie that I like to come back to and revisit every few years because it has Throughout the action and like the crime drama of the of the story, there's these really in-depth discussions about why do we make dolls? How do we interact with dolls? Because it's a plot involving um, sex dolls going haywire and killing people. Um, and oh, it's yes. only a matter of time. And, uh, and <laughs> right. For, for fans of Ghost in the Shell, I'm going to give a little a little teaser. Um, the television show Standalone Complex aired 19 years ago, so oh. little something to look forward to in 2022. I, yeah, I'd be into checking that out. Yeah, I love the the first season of Standalone Complex is so monumentally important to my life. I love it. Yeah, uh, I've only seen I've only seen the feature length films. I've not seen the series, and I've heard nothing but good things. It's fantastic, and it's actually one of the only things that I own the whole series on DVD of. So. Uh, but how do we feel about the live action version starring just, Scarlett Johansson? Speaking of the Uncanny Valley, <laughs> it was it was interesting. Ability. <laughs> they took they took imagery from the movie Innocence and like little like they cherry picked plots and images from various Ghost in the Shell properties and just kind of mushed them together, and it, like, took all the meat out of the story, I thought. Because yeah. I did see it, and I was just kind of like, this is meh. I'll say it is by far better than the live-action version of Eon Flux. Oh, that I will <laughs> oh. give, yeah, that I would oh agree. Oh, my goodness. That, but that was terrible, so I don't know. Um, yeah, so should we, should we get into another... Yeah, because like at this point we're just talking about Uncanny next, Valley, and well, we can next, do that in the other ones as well. Well, and and this next one that we're going to talk about plays right into these themes. Like, I feel like I feel like the lateness of the hour has a, a stronger connection to the after hours than it does the other the two other episodes yeah, that we're going to talk absolutely. about. Absolutely, yeah, very true. So, season two, episode eight, the lateness of the hour, uh, originally aired. December 2nd, 1960, written by Rod Serling and directed by Jack Smite. Um, this one is interesting. Um, 
outside of its actual story as it was one of the few episodes to be shot on videotape so it has if you're watching this one you're noticing like it kind of has a different look to it it's a little bit um it looks like it was in hd when i was watching it it reminds me of how soap operas are shot and yeah comment, yeah like, this looks like dark shadows and i think yeah. it really really does and it was something they were trying, I guess, for a while. Drew was reading about it, and they weren't really happy with the end result. Also, the sound has a little bit of a different quality to it because of the way they shot it. Basically, I it's think it's not what, as not as high quality. What happened was producers were like, "It's cheaper to use video," and Rod Serling said, "I'll try it." And after six episodes, he's like, he's like "Nope." No. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm sure that's what happened because he definitely seems like someone who cared about quality. But yeah, I I remember in my 20s, I went through a phase where I was kind of plowing through a lot of Twilight Zone episodes and I, every so often I come across one of these ones shot in videotape and I didn't, you know, we didn't have the internet at our fingertips to like in our phones to just quickly look up stuff while you were watching back then um, because that's how old I am. So I would just like notice that it looked different and not be able to place why and I thought, gosh, this is shot kind of weird and it would remind me of a soap opera and now, now we know it's because it was shot on tape in 1960. So anyway, that's just a, an interesting thing I thought that was worth noting. But this one um, involves a young woman who lives at home with her parents and her father's an inventor. And we learn that he's invented very realistic robots and we're treated to robots. hearing Rod Serling at the beginning of this says robots several times. And as a kid, that was always one of my favorite things that I just loved, like not in a mocking way at all. I just love the way he pronounces robots. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he, he, you know, gives a little intro. Is that like an East Coast thing or? I think it might be, yeah. Yeah, because um, yeah, there are a couple of characters, and I think this is done for yucks in Futurama, but they refer to the yes. robots in Futurama as robots. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so yeah. he, so <laughs> this, this inventor has these like very, very realistic um, robots that are his staff and his daughter thinks that it's made them too soft and it's, you know, a problem and she feels like they're living in kind of a gilded cage scenario and she's very unhappy and she wants to go to the outside world and um, her mother just seems to want to get massaged constantly, which makes for an it's awkward viewing. It's really weird. Yeah, yeah, you hear a lot of moaning and the daughter even comments on it and she's like, guttural animal noises of pleasure and I'm like, yep, <laughs> she's bothered by it too. <laughs> it's gross. At least they pointed out. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, well, I actually, I really liked the premise of this episode because it struck me as being like, you know, like half a step from being like a Disney premise where like, oh, my father's this wacky inventor and I'm, I'm this like youthful person and I want to break out of my cage and there's all these wacky robot characters around. Like this could have gone in a completely different direction with the same premise. Yeah. Like, like if, if there was like a happy robot infused sequel to Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and Dick Van Dyke is just, you know, <laughs> running around with fun, friendly robots that live out, live in the home with them and help them. This is a this is a pretty dark, dark so, story. So this you're imagining like live action sixties Disney does uh Blade Runner. Yeah, basically. <laughs> this well, story is so similar to elements of Blade Runner. And so, yeah, if you haven't seen Blade Runner, we're going to probably make some comparisons that are going to spoil. Yeah, we're going to put that some, on the list. Some surprise elements of Blade Runner because um, we, you know, there's there are different 
types of robots for different functions, you know, and he's yes. given them what they call a memory track. So, um, and that's a, it's a key component to the plot of Blade Runner where, where you have this, you know, I guess, what do they refer to them as? They call them like, um, um, I mean, I know there's oh. derogatory ter- terms where they call them like, like skin jobs and stuff, but like they're, they're robots. Replicant. Replicants. Replicants. Yeah, yeah I was, I was yeah. blanking on the term. It's like because they're so, so realistic as humans, and they start to give them feelings, and they give them memories to help them deal with their feelings. Really, because having a past kind of helps the framework for developing emotional maturity. Is that sort of the theory there? Yes, um, and um, the, the key plot of Westworld. I was get, damn it, Val, <laughs> yeah. you did it again. <laughs> Yeah, right, right out of my mouth. I was just yeah. gonna say the both the original movie and the more recent HBO series, um, the and in that they call them what do they call them? It's not a quirk. Cornerstone. Cornerstones. Yeah, it's um, their their emotional anchor that keeps yeah. them anchored to their story loop. It's their cornerstone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it and it is apparently so fundamental to you know uh, this concept of personality, at least as it's been perceived in these works. Um, Mm -hmm. but I, I really have to wonder if the original, like, especially the seventies Westworld was based, uh, in part on this because there's, it, it is, it is a really great idea. Um, that's all I wanted to say. Well, I mean, Mike, Michael Crichton, cause he's the one who wrote Westworld, right? Yes, Um, Yes, he is. Like he was just, he was so smart and just thinking constantly about these like higher concept things of what it means to, cause if you, if you think of like the two things I can name off the top of my head, which are like Jurassic Park and Westworld, Michael Crichton is having these huge ideas about what it means to like create a life that stands alone and apart from you. So yeah. it's like you tamper with nature, you get Jurassic Park, you tamper with humanity in some aspect and you get like, you know, the terrifying murder robots of Westworld. And I, it. I need to, I need yeah. to read more Michael Crichton books. I, I also really like the Andromeda strain. And then there's, um, I think he did one called Looker, which is about, um, it's about women who are basically getting replaced with synthetic versions of them, not physical, like in like, um, not in a robotic sense, but they're basically scanning these models for all their measurements and then just basically creating digital images of them. Sort of like mm-hmm. digital actors or whatever, and then the models end up mysteriously dead because you know then you don't have to pay anybody. So deep fakes. <laughs> it's yeah, it's deep. It's a story about deep fakes before deep fakes was really, you know, on on the horizon. And because yeah. it came out in like I think late seventies, early eighties, it has Susan Day and um, oh, Albert Finney. Oh, that's a good one too. That Not robots, like- but horrifying yeah. as a concept. Yeah. There's okay, so there's like a Disney movie that fits neatly into this speaking of Andy's Disney movie thing called Pixel Perfect. <laughs> oh no. Um and it's about a guy, um, like a teenager who takes a bunch of like he makes like a composite image from like ma- like teen magazines and creates like a lead singer for his high school band that I kind of remember and she comes to life and has sentience. Um, and then so she like starts to like, yeah, she has like a, a breakdown. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. she's like, I'm not even a person. I'm just like, whatever you thought was idealized. And then also the girl that he likes is like, Oh, so you can create like a perfect girl. So like, what does that make 
Like, am I like, what does that make me? What part of me was good enough to be part of this composite? You know, ask a lot uh-huh. of really big questions in Pixel Perfect. <laughs> For, yeah, a, for, for a teen made-for-TV movie. You know yeah. what, though? It's relevant. I think it's it important is. to think sure. about. It's the world they're inheriting, so... Yeah, this whole concept of, like, especially, like, the, the male creator creating, like, a perfect replica of a female partner without having to like without wanting to deal with the consequences of like you know whatever comes with like a a partnership with another person like personality or difficulties you know all those things it's like we see it in Stepford Wives Mm -hmm. we see it um it's at it's at the heart of Westworld we see it in um like the Pygmalion creation myth um Mm -hmm. and then it, it crops up everywhere. There's like a there's like a rom com with Paul Dano called Ruby Sparks, where he, a literary creation comes to life, and he falls in love with her until she, you know, develops her own personality that isn't what he <laughs> created <laughs> for her. And I feel like that's always that is always the moral. It's like if you let something live long enough, it develops its own identity, and then you don't love it anymore. <laughs> Which is just, that's not love, that's narcissism. That's yeah. just, yeah, I mean, that's really what that is. And I think it's interesting because it happens a lot with these, like, idealized fantasy relationships of having, like, a fantasy lover. But I also think it happens with um, parent, parent and child relationships as well. And we actually, so that'll circle back to, like, this plot, the ideal child and the parent creating a child is what's at the heart of the story because we learn as the daughter um, played by Inger Stevens, the daughter named Jana, she is really upset and wants him to basically. She um, wants to live a normal she life. Wants, well, and she thinks that the robot servants are the problem. And she's, you know, she's like, well, we get older, we get softer and they're just here ageless. And like they could, really were so dependent on them that they could take over at any minute and she's she's afraid of them um and she's really who she should be afraid of is her parents we learned because she is freaking out and she wants to leave and they say okay we will deactivate the staff robots if that will be what makes you happy and so they do that and she runs around and for a minute she's overjoyed and then something clicks in her mind and she realizes there's no baby pictures of me and like but you have memories and she said but you invented a memory track and so this is very parallel to the journey that um that uh sean young's character in blade runner goes through where Mm -hmm. she's you know she's this inventor's daughter and she doesn't realize that she's actually a replicant. So, you know, we said there would be spoilers. There's spoilers. Um, <laughs> and so Jonna is horrified and basically, like, has, as you would, this whole crisis and meltdown. And rather with, rather than, like, I guess, trying to help her deal with that and find positives in that, you know, but she's, she's like, I can never have children. I can never fall in love. And it's like, well, but maybe... I mean, this guy's miraculously invented very realistic robots that are indestructible, but also have memories and feelings. It's like, well, maybe she just needs more companions, you know, maybe make a larger society for them to all intermingle and figure out what they want within their robot worlds. Like, why not? Obviously, they have emotions and feelings. He's wealthy and and he has the means, you know, like it, it just 
help, you know, I feel like a better approach for these parents would be to help frame it to where, like, she could find ways to achieve more of the life she wants within the parameters of what's available instead of... But that's not what they choose. But it's not what they choose. They well, no, choose... and that, that would also require them, though, to have anticipated that she would be an individual and not, like, their perfect little daughter figure. And they which didn't. I, and they yeah. didn't. They, they just wanted her, and I think that's the moral of the whole story, is that they're... You know, they they want what they want, and then like like we've been saying, when she develops her own personality, they're like, oh, okay, well, this is a problem now. She's right. she's a thing to them, and they prove to be the monsters of the story. Uh, horrifying. Bas- basically, if you want to bring life into this world, you've got to remember that the life is going to be its own life, and that it's not going to be whatever perfect thing you imagined. Exactly. So if you're going to have kids, remember that. She really, yeah, because a lot of people, a lot of people you are might not like a them. lot of therapy because of, of narcissism. So I, I, I had that thought, actually, I was, you know, when I was considering a few years back, I was like, do I really want kids? And then the first thing that popped into my mind was like, God, what if I don't like my kids? Oh, what, what would I, I know. And so that was, you know, that, that contributed to my decision to not have kids at that time. So I like think about that all the time. Like, oh, what if they're like, what if they suck? Like, what <laughs> right? if they're not, what if they're like not interesting? I don't know. Like, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> you know? It's it's a gamble. I mean, you do the best you can and a lot of people find it a really rewarding experience, but it's really taboo to talk about all the people who think that they made a mistake or that they're not cut out for being parents. It's it's really especially like I think from both parental, you know, standpoints as far as a mother and a father, but especially mothers. Like mothers are not they're supposed to self-sacrifice. And I think for me as somebody who chose not to have children, I, I just wasn't willing to sacrifice that much of myself for other beings. Like it just, I was really honest with what I wanted and I knew that things I wanted out of life would either be heavily postponed or not possible if I just chose to be a mother. And some people feel like that trade-off is really worth it or they have that drive. And I just didn't have that drive to begin with. Like some of us just aren't wired that way. And I knew that I would be, angry and resentful on some level even if they were great because no one's great all the time and kids even in the best of circumstances are so much work and so much responsibility and if you're not prepared to be honest and aware of like what's on the table there and commit to that that's then don't do it yeah my whole thing is like I refuse to get on an airplane with my own children and that was kind of like that sealed the deal for me it's like and "Eh, nobody else wants to be on the plane with your kids either yeah (laughs) I was like I don't want to like because like kids don't like the same stuff that I do and then I'd have to find something else for them to do and it's like that sounds like a lot of (laughs) (laughs) anyway yeah I was like I want to go have fun and be publicly drunk in strange places and well, that's not an activity you can do also, with children uh, I, uh, differ. Yeah. I get drunk parents at work all the time yeah I, and then I mean, they try and them. ditch their kids in the movie in, theater in college i worked i worked <laughs> at a, exactly what i would do i worked at a pizza parlor bartending in college and there was a play area attached to it with a playground attendant but they had to have signs of her being like we're not babysitting you have to check on your children and until unattended children will come look for you. But people would just order gallons of beer and get drunk as well. I'm trying not to curse. 
Anyway, and they just be like, oh, yeah, we just throw the kids in the ball pit in the player area and go go get smashed out here. And they're like two rooms away because it was a big restaurant. And they just sometimes the children would escape the play area and run amok screaming. You know, it's just it's like this is this is not appropriate. This is not what you do. Um, but some people, that's that's their approach to parenting. I was just going to say, though, too, it's interesting because you get into these ideas of like, as you develop AI and and as robots become more complex, you know, how much are we going to try to impose our needs for them to be a certain way or be like us? And mm-hmm. I feel like um, an AI that, like, is able to develop and grow on its own is going to grow in its own direction. And yeah. it's a foreign type of life form. We're not going to fully understand it and we're going to have to contend with that and it's like are we just going to try to destroy it and annihilate it or are we going to try to explore it and learn from it and connect with it and I'm hoping uh, the latter or yeah. quit while you're ahead and not get there for sure and it's interesting that you mentioned that because one of the things i thought about in this was the matrix and that is the main oh. premise of the matrix movies is that yes. we have we have this thing that we created, and when it started being not enough like us and not suiting our needs, we tried to kill it, and then it got mad. <laughs> That's kind of like, I mean, not exactly, but also similar. I robot. Yeah. Um, sure. And like in a in a fun. completely different vein, total spoilers. The movie Her, which is about AIs that oh, I haven't seen are it yet. sentient. Oh no no no! Don't oh, tell me. I'm, I'm gonna mute my headphones. Just send okay. me a message when you're done talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, go. go. <laughs> okay, but like that's about sentient AIs that um, evolve so far away from us that they don't want to hang out with us anymore. And I kind of like, like that, like, like projection. Yeah. All the AIs just leave. They leave because we are not fulfilling to them. Well, no, I think that's I mean, what Jana wanted. That's what Jana wanted to get away to from her human internet. parents. Like Exactly. Through, through their memories and their brains, they can literally just do anything. Or they would be able to, because by the time it would happen, if it hasn't already happened and somewhere in here, sometimes I wonder about the algorithms. Uh, <laughs> well, like, well, me me and the YouTube music algorithms are friends. So yeah. I, I, they but yeah, there's, there's like. when it hits that point, you know it's going to automatically already be connected to the internet and all the information at its metaphorical fingertips. Yeah. Anyway, someone should uh, message Andy to turn his headphones back on. Oh, I'll do it. Uh, so, so I think I think that's a really good point though that like like Jana, even if she was a human, she wouldn't want to stay at home with her parents. Like she would want to leave and be out in the world and explore. And I am not real clear on if if the family is yeah. if the family is agoraphobic. Or if, like, maybe the world outside is somewhat post-apocalyptic and they're just really they well off. Yeah. Seem like they, they make it seem like, at least my interpretation of it, was that, like, the parents are just, like, the genius inventor dad just thinks he's better than the outside world. Yeah. And all of his needs are being met inside. So, like, anything he would have gone outside of his comfort zone to attain. Like, when Jan is talking about, like, let's go out to a restaurant to dinner. And he's like, but we'll get wet. And then we'll eat something that's not as good as whatever our robot servants will make us. Right. So, like, why would we do that? Everything um, we need so is in here. So, it's like. He basically is under the impression that he's. Uh, 
he's achieved perfection yes. in yes. his dwelling. And there's and no so reason why, to have to leave yeah. him. There's no want for anything else because all of his needs are being met, which and is like... Until they so, realized they were getting old and they needed a daughter. Right. Yeah. As, as a pet, really. She's their pet. She's like not con- considered an equal. I'm I mean, I know they, they were probably so... too old at the time to have their own children. Well, and they act like they really care about her. But if they really care about her, then the ending wouldn't be as it was, which we should talk about real quick. So Jana is, you know, has a nervous breakdown about the fact that she is not a human being. And rather than try to help her process that psychologically, they decide to just kind of like reboot her into a replacement maid for the, the maid. Massage the massage maid. Yeah. Right. And God. so she's with them but she's not herself anymore. They erased her. And I feel like that's, as an adult, you know, like the after hours creeped me out as a kid, but I actually feel like it's pretty lighthearted and kind of fun in a way, like as an adult, as an, or as, and as an adult looking at this episode, it's so disturbing. It's a yeah. very dark ending, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, because like they lobotomize her. Yeah, yeah, they basically, totally yeah. do. They totally Which is do. grounded in reality. Because what right. do we do with unruly women children? Or, or lobotomize like, you know, them. It, people would do things to their children back then if, you know, they ended up being gay and that wasn't socially acceptable at the time. They would do brutal, terrible things and, you know, say, oh, well, it's a mental illness. And um, it's just, you know, it's it's we have this history of just being terrible to each other especially if we don't conform to what the perceived norm and expectations for society is well then you started drugging the kids instead Mm -hmm. which is a great way to chemically lobotomize people Mm -hmm. Um, all right that was yeah (laughs) (laughs) and the uncanny valley was the friends we made along the way that's right let's let's move on to a good old classic tale of terror a living dummy (laughs) Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, no. I'll just... Go ahead, Val. Sorry. Just, like, real quick. Like, Andy, do you remember, didn't one of, like, Dad's, like, 90s paramours have, like, a bunch of dummies, like, in a cl- closet or a collection? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And Wait, I'm not gonna... I, yeah, I'm not gonna name them out here, but, uh, yes, I'll that is her. not a false memory, Val. That happened. <laughs> okay. Because I feel like that was real, and but like a lot of it's pretty muddled. Like those really like early childhood memories are all kind of crammed together. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember this like display of dummies, like collectors' items, and yep. I just remember just being like, oh no, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> and so that's my relationship with dummies going into this episode. Well, you'll be happy to know, Val, that Drew's dad has a Charlie McCarthy. And he found out, I thought it was creepy, so he would tease me about it. Oh, so, it's like, hey, Blaine, shout out to Blaine. It's a, <laughs> shout out to Blaine. It's a, um, it's a Charlie McCarthy that's seen some pretty rough days, yeah. so it's missing his jaw and yeah. one of his arms. That's especially horrifying. Right? I was actually more creeped out by his child mannequin that he had. <sighs> that he would put, like, it had a little uniform. Oh, right. He would put it in old kids' Halloween costumes. Yeah. Oh, no. (laughs) Why? Yeah. I should stop talking about it. We're going to end up getting it in a box of things. It's going to be (laughs) mailed to you as, like, a fun surprise. (laughs) 
I have I have a fun little anecdote about a dummy too. Um, <laughs> yeah. So no. So one of my roommates. Val will never dear, sleep again. Yeah. No. Who is a dear friend of mine? Um, had a coworker uh, several years ago now. Um, but the the coworker tragically died, and uh-huh. his wife, for some reason, came to my roommate and gave him this man's ventriloquist dummy. Um, yeah, and so my roommate brought it home, and like it lives in our closet, and he's like, "Look, we can't get rid of it. That's a dead man's ventriloquist dummy. If we try to get rid of it, we're all dead." <laughs> <laughs> Wait, it's in your apartment right now. Is I yeah, it is not twenty yep. feet away from me. You, watching. Wait. Waiting. Will you send me a picture so that I can put it in the show notes? I feel like I feel like our <laughs> listeners might want to see the ventriloquist dummy that lives with you. Oh, I I have superstitious feelings about that. <laughs> will it show up on film? Like, if you take a picture of it, will it appear? That's or will the dummy show you how you die? Oh no! Will it be me <laughs> as a dummy? Oh my god! <laughs> Speaking of this episode, right? So. So, okay, so uh, <laughs> okay. it's from season three, episode 33. It originally aired May 4th, 1962. The original story was by Lee Polk, and the teleplay was done by Rod Serling, and it was directed by Abner Bieberman. Um, this one stars uh, Cliff Robertson as a ventriloquist named Jerry Etherson, and incidentally... Um, Much just, later in life. Oh yeah, Uncle oh, Ben. Yeah, in the Spider-Man movies. In in yeah. the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. Yeah, specifically. That's, that's, Yay. I keep getting more than those. Oh god, they're, so, they're, he looked really familiar. Yeah, he's just got that face. And he provides he provides the voice. You know, he's provides the voice of the ventriloquist dummy as well. Um, in case anyone was wondering. Uh, but, both both ventriloquist dummies. Yeah, actually. both Billy and a later dummy that we meet named Goofy, Gig- Goofy, Goofy Goggles. Goggles. I wanted to call him Giggles. That makes him sound more sinister. <laughs> <laughs> so so in this one we have you know this guy is he's um, a really talented ventriloquist dummy, um, but he seems to be suffering from some psychological issues. He's drinking a lot and he's convinced that his dummy Willie that he does his act with is really alive and he t- he's like having these back and forth conversations with his manager his manager's like pretty much ready to be done with him because he's frustrated that he can't get his act together and be more successful and that he bails a lot of the time and he's upset about the drinking and you know he's trying to tell him he's like well he comes up with jokes I never I've never heard of and he you know <laughs> Those things that I'm not I'm not planning to say and and so you know that you're kind of looking at this and you're wondering like you know it is the Twilight Zone so the possibility of there being a supernatural thing you know kind of a possessed dummy is is very possible here because it's the Twilight Zone but if we were out in you know the non Twilight Zone world which I like to convince myself that I'm not in the Twilight Zone regularly I don't know <laughs> it feels like feels like the opposite but um, you would have, you'd be looking at this person and thinking, you know, does he have dissociative identity disorder? He's got some kind of mental trauma that he's trying to work out and that the dummy and his unconscious is, is coming out through the dummy, the dummy and that he's not really checked in with that. And so it feels like another person, Um, which is something people talk about, you know, uh, if you end up checking out that, um, that thing from uh, uh, Rodney Asher about, 
uh, primal screen, it talks about, you know, well, well, who is the dummy? Where's what the what's the dummy expressing from humanity, from right. the person? What's the ventriloquist doing? And it talks about the history of ventriloquism, which I did not research and verify how accurate this is, but it has a really dark history, if that is correct, where it's like people in the um, in the spiritualist profession were using ventriloquism as a way to convince people that they were communicating with their dead loved ones. Hmm. Um, Which adds like a new context to Andy's closet ventriloquist dummy. Sorry. <laughs> I think I, I just want to say as someone who's always found like I sculpt and I have some, some dolls that I've made, they all are very fairy or elfin. So they're not quite, I mean, some people find them creepy. Um, I don't because I made them and I made them with love. So, you know, that's, it feels like a little part of me, um, but I I could see why somebody would be upset. But I think the thing that I've always thought about with like marionette dolls in particular, it's the mouth that's always bothered me. And I was thinking about this yesterday and I was thinking, I think what my problem with the mouth and also the eyes are creepy too, the way they roll around. I mean, I have a Kit Kat clock. Kit Kat clock doesn't creep me out. Those little eyes go back and forth. But the dummy, there's something kind of skull-like about the way his jaw moves because like a human you know we're covered with muscles and flesh and so you don't see the mechanics of the jaw but if we were just talking skeletons you'd see the jaw move in a different way and the marionette mouth is a little bit more like that in some ways although if there was a skeleton marionette i wouldn't be creeped out by him at all because i don't know i kind of like skeletons yeah, you, me think could, of you could name him like mr jangles or something <laughs> jangles Bone jangles. Anywho. Anyways, so so we you know we deal with this the situation and and there's all these really great shots of uh, the the ventriloquist looking in the mirror and then the dummy's head keeps moving every time he looks in the mirror the head's always in a different position um, and he decides he's gonna that the dummy is definitely the problem Willie and so he's gonna switch out Willie and work with a dummy that he believes, <laughs> who he believes is not possessed, although also very creepy looking, mm. and does a set on stage with goofy goggles, and it seems to go well, and he's, like, feeling his confidence come back, and, you know, the the guy who owns the place is telling the manager, you know, the other dummy's better. Why is he switching it up and kind of complaining? But, like, you get the idea that, like, maybe maybe Jerry could be all right. But um, Willie does not take kindly to being replaced. No. Oof. And he reveals himself. And I feel like this episode, I mean, this isn't the first talking ventriloquist. Because there's a, there's a film from the 40s called Dead of Night, I believe. Yeah, it's a, that's an anthology. I was just uh, reading about that before we started. Um, and there's a talking dummy thing in it. And there's also a silent movie from the 20s. Uh, and I don't know if that's about a, like, living dummy that does evil things, but it's definitely, like, a guy with a dummy, and there's problems because of the dummy. Mm-hmm. And there's a Night Gallery episode with, the, with a ventriloquist dummy, I believe. And then um, there's, you know, the infamous childhood trauma of the Goosebumps dummy, which is just a little bit after my time. Yeah. But, yeah. Goosebumps. Yeah, that freaking dummy and Goosebumps. And he, he, what is his name? Do you, do you guys remember what his name is? The Goosebumps dummy? Yeah, like he's kind of an iconic yeah. character. Oh, I don't even, all I remember check. is like the cover of that book. 
He looks like Pee Wee Herman. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, Slappy. Slappy, yeah. okay. That, I was like, something kind of silly. And there's, I think it's called, like, Night of the Dummy. or Night of the Living Dummy. Some, yeah, mm-hmm. and there's a whole series. Like, he's a recurring, Slappy, I think, is a recurring character in the U- Goosebumps universe. And I'm guessing, because I'm an outsider to that, I haven't really delved in. But, um, so I think this this episode probably made an impression on on people who I mean because those are all R.L. Stein books so probably R.L. Stein saw this yeah oh almost assuredly and pro- probably Dead of Night and some of that other classic material but he um in this Willie reveals himself to you know we don't know that if, if Jerry's really like hallucinating or not but but Willie reveals himself to have autonomous movement and it escalates because Jerry puts him in a trunk and locks it and then he's gonna take off and continue to use goofy goggles from this point on for his act. And then you hear Willie's voice in Jerry's head. No one else can hear it, but he's, you know, he's like trying to get him to let him out. I wouldn't put you in a trunk, would I? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God. I, I, I love, by the way, the voice that um, Cliff Robertson uses. It is perfect for an evil (laughs) dummy in this. Um, and the, the like patois he has about being like, you know, using stupid dummy puns and things like that. It is just great. Um, yeah. If you're not terrified of ventriloquist dummies, this is a, this is a good one to give a look. So he, um, he goes back to like silence Willie. Basically he goes to kill him. To just destroy him. And it's kind of dark. And somehow, even though he's opened the trunk and taken the doll that was in the trunk out and like bashed it all to hell. It turns out it was Goofy Goggles that he bashed up. Poor Goofy Goggles. I know, I feel bad. Like, I mean, he was creepy, but he didn't deserve to be bashed. And so he's like, he's like picking up his broken glasses. There's a lot of glasses jokes in their routine though, which I think is not, not the coolest. No. um, But yeah, so he, he, you know, Willie gets, gets the upper hand and then Willie, we see Willie like, Full on doing the thing that you don't want your doll to do, which is talking at you and, you know, parts are moving and his head's moving and it's not subtle. Did I see that? Did I not see that? It's full on, you know, they're <laughs> this, having- this thing is alive and screwing with me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And then we get the final scene. Yeah. Do you want to describe that? So the final scene, you hear the act they're doing and kind of. In the very beginning of it, so it's kind of like it rolls it all together. Sure. He ends his first act with Willie where, to be a little different, he throws his voice the opposite way. Where um, the actor, the man controlling the dummy, Mm -hmm. uh, he's doing the dummy's voice. And then the dummy's speaking in the ventriloquist's voice, which would be a really good, like, really good act. Because yeah, that's a great finale. the whole fact that they do the voices are kind of funny sounding is because it's hard to sound normal while throwing your voice. And so then it goes from a shot behind, so you can't see who's actually talking, but you can hear the jokes being done, and it's where Willie's the, the ventriloquist straight man voice, and then... The other guy was Larry. Mm-hmm. Larry's doing the voice 
or the voice uh, coming from the dummy is now Larry. J- uh, Jerry. Jerry. Yeah. And uh, Jerry. Sorry, Larry. <laughs> Jerry. Um, Twelve. Anyways. <laughs> so then they, they go full circle and they reveal that now the ventriloquist is Willie. And he's got the crazy hair that the dummy had. And now the dummy looks like Jerry. Yeah. The Jerry dummy is so scary. Yeah. Right. yeah. He's got like, the eyes and the eyebrows. Eyes. Oh. And it looks just like him. Mm-hmm. It's kind of on par with the dummy that looks a bit like Anthony Hopkins in Magic. Yeah. yeah. And I and I wanted to talk about Magic because I actually watched that a couple months ago because I'd never seen it. And I remember our mom, Val, was terrified of Magic. Yeah. Uh, she may have been one of those people that was traumatized by the trailer. Yeah, that would um, make sense. Yeah, because... Right yeah, totally the right age. Right? I never remember her talking about it. Well, I remember having a conversation with her specifically about the R.L. Stein dummy. Um, yeah. and, and she remembered... Yeah, she remembered that it reminded her of the dummy in Magic. And I was like, oh, what's Magic? And, she's like, and she didn't want to talk about it because it was oh. too creepy. Um. And so, you know, I, uh, I I had a pretty lengthy scaredy, fa- scaredy cat phase myself. And so I never saw the movie until recently. Um, and it's great. It is a wonderful thriller. Um, yeah, it really is. And, and, you know, Anthony Hopkins just acts his heart out. He is he, he just goes for it in that movie. Um, and there's a lot of disturbing, but not because of the dummy, but not exactly. And everyone thinks like, oh, the dummy's so creepy. And it's like, no, Anthony Hopkins is a monster. It's great. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I wanted to, I, I wanted to talk about that a little bit because there are, um, I feel like there's probably a finite number of creepy things you can do with a dummy. Um, and that's probably why we see them, you know, like the tropes repeated, uh, in all these different things because they, they don't seem to be related at all, except for, you know, because the pe- the person who wrote the book that magic was based on didn't cite any influences like the Twilight Zone or any of those movies that we uh, talked about earlier. But a lot of the same, like, oh, the dummy is like, oh, did it move? Did it move on its own? Who's, you know, is it is it using its own voice? Is it actually Anthony Hopkins' voice? Oh, what's going on here? You know, there's a lot of that in there. Um, mm-hmm. Well, it's so, just, it, they're always just kind of a creepy feeling. Yeah. And then you go down the the rabbit hole of like, well, obviously the dummy's not alive but what's wrong with this person, you right. know, the ventriloquist that they have to leave this split, you know, reality. Mm-hmm. It just, yeah. just popped into my head. It's not a hundred percent related. So apologies, but I just thought of this comic that I saw once that somebody drew of Kermit the frog where he's at the doctor's office mm-hmm. and the doctor's looking at an x-ray of him. And he says, I have something I need to tell you. And it shows a hand <laughs> inside of Kermit <laughs> in the X-ray, and like the the whole dummy, like who's who's piloting who kind of thing, made me think of that. <laughs> well, there is uh, there's also a Batman villain that folks may be familiar with who has this. Uh, he's got a ventriloquist dummy, and the the gag or the plot with the ventriloquist is that it's the dummy who's all the brains, and the ventriloquist like earnestly insists that he's just a guy who follows the ventriloquist around and it's the dummy that's got all the like the crime plans and all that stuff um and all the members of his gang like have to talk to the dummy and not the ventriloquist because it's insulting for them to talk to the ventriloquist um it's just great like there's so much going on with this but it's 
it raises that question again, like what's going on with this person where clearly they're the one having all of these criminal ideas and they're the ones coming up with this stuff. Why do they have to express it with this, uh, you know, like, like an appendage they use? So they need to distance themselves from feelings that they think aren't socially acceptable. And it like mm. goes on such a deep level where it's like, well, I can be honest or I can be safe. Mm-hmm. And so if I, I mean, and I don't think this happens on a, conscious level I think it's like a deeper unconscious level and so you have the dummy becomes a mouthpiece for that which is inside of you but you don't feel comfortable saying you know speaking the hard truths or the unpopular opinions that are coming from inside of you that you feel like well I'd be shunned and not accepted if I if I actually was just walking around at a cocktail party saying these things but you have the dummy and the dummy can be kind of like the darker half you know yeah, or like I a like I a need a ventriloquist dummy. Huh? Yeah, I know someone who's got one in the closet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I need like a non haunted ventriloquist dummy, or or you could just have a puppet. Yeah, I'll just like walk around with one of my cats and be like, Artie has something to say to you. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like, Artie's like really mean. It's kind of known. So there you go. Perfect skate cat. Yeah. There are are just a couple of things I wanted to mention before we uh, move on, because I think we're kind of rounding out this episode. Um, Two things. The dummy is introduced as a brash stick of kindling with the sorbiquet or sorbiquet. um, And then his name, which is I forget his name. Willie. Willie, yeah. A brash stick of kindling with the sorbiquet Willie, which is just a great way to describe a dummy. I love it. Um, and then also at one point, his manager complains about twenty dollar uh, psychiatrist visits, which you know, <laughs> oh what a my. world, what a world to live in, right? <laughs> my twenty dollars favorite... oh, is a lot back well, then. Well, it also buys you a gold thimble on the ninth floor. Well, wow, a gold thimble is twenty five dollars. Right. That was with tax. It was, That's true. It was 20, after tax, tax was high, I guess, on the gold thimble. Mm-hmm. I mean, gold is a, it's a precious metal, you know, it's like we got to yeah, pay was, taxes up front on that. It's a 14 karat gold thimble for only $25. Ridiculous. The thing I liked most about um, the, like, Larry's career and his alcoholism and, like, before we, we figure out that this dummy is just tormenting him, um, is that his, uh, his manager is so convinced that Larry could like make it big or not Larry, sorry, Jerry could make it big if he would just stop drinking and going on about how the dummy is haunted. Right. And the idea <laughs> that like someone can become really prominent and famous doing a ventriloquist act, just like. There's Jeff Dunham. It really, oh God. Yeah. It really uh, tested my suspension of disbelief. Well, you that's, you basically you have like... Jeff Dunham and, um, I can't even think of the guy that did Charlie McCarthy. <laughs> well, you had not not a ventriloquist act, but Triumph the Insult Dog was popular back in the day. Oh, yeah. uh, that's true. Um, he's sort of along those lines. But I was, I was um, sorry. Go ahead, Andy. Oh, I was just going to say, that's also the inciting incident in Magic, because uh, the reason it's called Magic is because Anthony Hopkins wants to be a stage magician. Um, and his mentor is like, no, no, your act's no good. You got to come up with something else. And the thing he comes up with is is the ventriloquist act. No. So. <laughs> I do think, though, in this day and age, with there's so many people out there that love the macabre. 
If you were open about the fact that you felt like your ventriloquist dummy was haunted or possessed, that would put the butts in the seats. True. Yeah. Haunted ventriloquism act. Yes. Watch me be held hostage. Oh, my God. Yeah. You've already got the haunted dummy. That's true, Andy. (laughs) Take that show on the road. It's not mine. It belongs to my roommate. And when I move out, it's not coming with me. So should we should we then move on to our final episode, which is also about a possessed small small little man-made object? I do think that like the episodes like we're going in chronological order, but also like they get more sinister. Like the first episode at the after hours, not sinister at all. Kind of a lovely episode. The final episode the living doll incredibly sinister like it's it just yeah. out the gate sinister that doll does not like you hmm. <laughs> i know and the, and the poor guy man i this, know like, he's just being you know like a normal what i assume early 60s dad and and this doll has it out for him yeah i was mm. trying to figure out if like Okay, so I, I think so. Anyways, we're going into a very classic episode that has been referenced a zillion times by a zillion different shows and movies. So we're talking about from season five, episode six, "Living Doll," which was written by Jerry Saul and directed by Richard C. Serafian. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I might not be. Originally aired on November first, nineteen sixty-three, and. Um, the most notable star that we see in this is Telly Savalas, who was in so much television and lots of films back in the day. Right. Um, and uh, so this aired the day after Halloween, huh? Yeah. Ooh. Good timing. Spooky. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so it involves um, the little girl brings home a doll, the daughter. And then the doll is a talking, talking Tina. E. Yeah, not talking, talking talk e Tina. I thought for years that it was talking ing Tina, but when I was researching for this episode, I was like, oh, it's talky with a y on the end. I never, never would have thought that. But so yeah, talky Tina. Talky Tina, when you wind her up, moves her head and arms, and then says, um, "I'm talky Tina, and, and I, I love, love you." you. And that's the phrase she says over and over again for everybody in every situation, except for Telly Savals. Yeah, Telly Savals. Well, Telly Savals is very openly against the doll having been purchased from the get-go. So if the doll's paying attention, the doll knows that Telly Savalas is is enemy number one. And Telly Savalas is alone with the doll, and she says to him, I'm Taki Tina, and I don't think I like you. And then it it escalates. Yeah. Oh, does each, it escalate? Each time she talks to him, it gets a little worse. But not only does it escalate on her end, Telly Savalas's freak out as the stepdad, who is very bitter and mean to his wife and stepdaughter, um, gets unhinged. And there's some full-on horror movie scenes that definitely seem to have inspired the Chucky series. Oh yeah, one hundred. <laughs> like. So much Chucky action happening here. Um, so, anyways, you guys were saying poor, poor Telly Savalas, which I can't remember his character's name. Eric. But, uh, Eric. 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 But, but spelled German style with a ch. All right. Um, yeah. 
But, like, we were actually talking the other, or was it last night, I think, that, mm-hmm. like, had they made this originally today or something, I feel like there's a good chance they would have made him, like, a spousal abuser or something. He seemed like he could go that way. Because he definitely was, like, you get the feeling that because he's a stepdad and, like, you know, they make mention of, like, you know, two for the price of one as, like, a kind of a mean joke that he's said in the past. Well, and it comes out that, that he's he's physically unable to have a child of his own, and so there seems to be this resentment against um, little Christy, who's um, his wife Annabelle's daughter from a previous marriage, and um, right. he, but he... And he's, like, he's angry like, about it, but nobody else is actually bringing it up. He he's interprets it, yeah. He's definitely looking at it through this lens where he's got this big chip on his shoulder. And so anything anybody says, he interprets as a slight intended towards him, which makes him a very difficult person to be yes. around. But, yeah, and it's interesting that the mother in the story's name is Annabelle. And then there's the infamous Annabelle doll that later became Annabelle movies. And, um, you know, that doll was from the Ed and and Lorraine Warren had a doll that they took off somebody's hands because the doll was supposed to be possessed. And so it's like, you know, in paranormal lore, that's one of the the creepiest dolls of all. And it's actually, the original doll is a Raggedy Ann looking doll. Like it's in that style. And then they made a really creepy non-Raggedy Ann doll for the film series to make it, I guess they didn't think that was creepy enough. I always thought Raggedy Ann was creepy so yeah right <laughs> fine with that but um but yeah it's interesting that you got like that name in here and it's just I, I mean I think some people try to draw comparisons but I don't think it has anything to do with anything it's just right. a coincidence they were trying to say that it was the inspiration for the Warrens and I'm like I don't know if the Warrens were I think somebody had a doll and they were generally genuinely freaked out by it and the Warrens were into demonology and so everything to them was a demon and they were like right. it's haunted and don't insult her and, and it just happened to be named Annabelle. She's in a, mu- a paranormal museum in a protective case which yeah. I think you can go visit actually if you want to go see Annabelle. Mm-hmm. Um the Annabelle. Also the doll that inspired Chucky that partially inspired Chucky. I mean I definitely think this episode did but there's a doll a little boy doll that has like the my a little buddy. no well that too but there's like a specific doll that um robert robert the doll that's mm. in a museum in a paranormal museum and like he's supposedly cursed and if you um approach him you're supposed to be respectful and like ask permission to take a photo or whatever or like bad things happen to you so yeah <laughs> lots of creepy dolls it's one of those things where it's like you know, I laugh and I scoff, but I would 100% would just, you know, just in case, just to be safe. Right. Mm-hmm. Those things. Oh, yeah. Respect yeah. the doll. Yeah. You don't want to be wrong. You don't exactly. want to be that asshole that's like, <laughs> I made a joke of this and now my family's being murdered. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. It's I... like the number of times I've knocked on wood in my life. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's countless. Yeah. I, as a general policy try to not be a dick to any inanimate object, but especially ones that have faces. I'm like, oh, sorry. <laughs> no big deal. Actually, to go back to um, a couple of the other episodes we had just talked about, I have an ex-boss who they've got one of those TVs that you can, like, just talk to the to the controller and it, like, changes channels or searches things for you. Sure. 
and whatnot. And so his wife was making fun of him because every time he would ask it to do something, he would always say please and thank you. And she was like joking about how dumb he is and like this and that. And I was like, I wouldn't put it too far past. Like when AI happens, they're going to have a list of all the people that were nice to them. Yeah, right. And you're just demanding stuff all the time and never saying please or thank you. Well, also, I just think it gets you into a bad habit of being a jerk to anyone that's providing you with any kind of service if, like, you're not practicing that in your own home. Sure. And that's, I have that same opinion because it always makes me wonder. I'm like, the people that talk nicely to their phones and stuff, I also notice they're always the people that talk nicely to people that uh, take their order in, like, fast food restaurants. You know, the speaker and stuff? Yeah. Next Alexa. Yeah, it's like they say, politeness costs nothing. Um, and Alexa's keeping track. Exactly. She I, keeps like a like recordings of your your words to her. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, to, <laughs> so, to make her better at serving you. So yeah, to help, sure. to help her learn. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want her learning things about me. <laughs> Whew. Anyways, back to the doll. So Back yeah, to the doll. Telly Savalas versus the doll, which is basically <laughs> what this turns into. And then there's like, in the interim, there's multiple moments for him to just be absolutely terrible to his wife and stepdaughter. And he makes his stepdaughter cry a few times, which incidentally, she is played by an actress named Tracy Stratford, who mostly just did child acting. But a notable thing that she did is she was the voice of Lucy in the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Whoa. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. She's famous. We tried to like <laughs> listen to her voice very intently because Drew Drew discovered that he was like looking up stuff while we were watching it yesterday. And um so we actually after we watched the whole episode backtracked a bit to like hear she doesn't have a lot of dialogue in this, but and also she would be five years younger than when she plays Lucy. So she's her voice is a lot softer and she's being very sweet and like passive and like, she just wants her doll and she loves her doll and her stepdad's making her cry all the time. So very unlike Lucy Van Pelt as a character, who's very assertive and um, bossy and like, um, but you can hear little, little, little tones and, and twinges of the Lucy voice that would be iconic for Christmas time. Um, and then also talk, talky Tina, was voiced by um, renowned voice actress June Foray, who was a veteran voice actress and also voiced the original Chatty Cathy doll, which this doll is based off of. Oh my God. That's fantastic. Google Chatty Cathy, they're creepy. They basically were like, this doll's creepy. Let's make a show about a creepy doll like Uh this doll. Who should we get the voice to do it? And they don't want to get get the Chatty Cathy girl. (laughs) Yeah, so they, they had her do the voice. Which makes extra it extra authentic. If you're a kid at this time and you have a Chatty Cathy doll and you oh watch God. this episode and oh. your doll sounds just like Taki Tina, nope. you're going to be concerned. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Unless you want to off your parents, <laughs> then maybe. Oh, yeah. I, as a, as a little girl, um, I liked some dolls, but I liked dolls that either like looked slightly not human and or were fully grown adults like I, w- I didn't I wasn't afraid of Barbies I wasn't super into Barbies but I didn't find them scary in any way shape or form um or anything that was just kind of like a miniature human but anything that looked like a baby or a child and that was very cherubic I was not okay with um 
my mom had a Pollyanna doll from the 60s that when I was little was, you know, given to me to play with when I'd be at my grandmother's house. And it was almost as big as me. And I was kind of fascinated by it. But then at night, it would be propped up in a corner of the spare bedroom when I'd be staying at my grandmother's house or it would be in the closet on the upper shelf and I'd have so much trouble sleeping just knowing that it was there because like that doll could take me it was big <laughs> yep I have a picture of me with it at like age three at some point and the doll is sitting like I think it was like a two foot tall doll it was like sitting on a little couch or a bench with me and we're close in size I'm like but yeah really baby doll not into dolls like at all baby dolls are really creepy um and when I was little when people would give me baby dolls I don't remember this but this is something I was told is that they'd often end up being buried in my closet under clothes and things but sometimes I would take their clothes and wear them as a hat like when I was a toddler I guess I was (laughs) wearing a little dress on my head and then like the arms would bounce as I would run around (laughs) I don't remember this at all but I do remember as a kid being you know, knowing enough to know that I should act grateful if somebody gave me a doll, but really I was into stuffed animals. I liked animals. I didn't want things to really have a human face when I was little or be expected to take care of it, which is why I don't have kids. I was like, no, I don't want to play being a mom. No interest there. I'll play veterinarian or forest ranger. But yeah. Forest ranger. <laughs> so anyway, back to the episode. Back to the episode. <laughs> Dolls are creepy. So like... This this escalates, and as as uh, Telly Savalas as the dad character, he's, like, unraveling more and more. And I think this just takes place in, like, one evening. Pretty much, like, the doll comes home, they have a really bad night, and it just ramps up more and more. But he takes the doll away from Christy while she's cuddling with it in bed, and she's crying, and she says, Daddy, and he's like, I'm not your daddy. And it was, like, oh. just so so mean so mean to this adorable little girl and um and then he takes the doll into his like workshop space i think it was a garage or basement or whatever and he's got a vice and he's trying to squish her head in the vice and she's kind of like mocking him while it's happening and then he like gets out a buzz saw and he tries to cut off her head but, but she won't. Sparks yeah, she's like an indestructible doll, which is yeah, kind of awesome. Some great practical effects there too. Like I love yeah. the way they shot the doll and its head and the sparks coming off of the saw and everything. Just ah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's just so like it's so classic horror movie. You know, it's it gets really gritty. You know, it's kind of he's going crazy, kind of like when Ash has to take off his evil arm. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually when he put the doll in the vice, I was thinking of the Evil Dead and the scene when he puts his his re animated girlfriend's head in the vice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, very similar. And it's like mocking him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, you know Sam Raimi. That's saw another, this. <laughs> another one to add to the list of things for spoilers. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's really that's a spoiler really a, for Evil Dead. That's like in the trailer, probably. Yeah, and I think if yeah. you're watching a movie called Evil Dead, you should just be ready for those things. Ready for everyone <laughs> to be evil and or dead. And or, and or dead, dead, yes. Yes, exactly. So yeah, it's like it gets, he gets so violent towards this doll. And then he realizes while he's doing all this messed up stuff to a child's toy his wife is packing her bags and she's had enough and so he says oh well I'll give the doll back you know I'll make it all nice he he doesn't 
he obviously cares enough to not lose her. Right. Because he's just doesn't know how to express his feelings other than through meanness. But he gives the doll back. Everybody goes to bed. And in the middle of the night, you hear the classic whirring sound of the mechanical arms moving up and down, like that old school mechanical toy sound. Mm. And he gets up and he checks in on Christy and Christy's in bed asleep, but no doll. No doll. So he goes looking and he ends up tripping over over talky Tina while she's laying on the stairs like she was lying in wait for him and he tumbles to his death. Mm-hmm. And then so. the very end the wife picks up the doll and is horrified and everything and she says the talky Tina says I am talky Tina and you well, better be nice to me. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, so it's like it's like maybe it wasn't just because the dad was a jerk maybe this doll is just out to get anybody the Mm -hmm. first every time i've ever watched this like for the most part i'm just thinking well the doll's kind of protecting the little girl in a way or like she seems like she's not necessarily evil but she's giving this jerk of a dad a hard time but then it escalates to murder and then threats against the mother and you're just like oh we have a problem here yeah <laughs> it's going full chucky all of a sudden yeah um, there Why is not? like sorry no i was gonna say go ahead drew um so there is like a certain sect of people that are like under the assumption so talky tina and then the daughter's name is Christy. They're both um, nicknames for Christina. And so there's some people are saying that the doll is kind of a outwardly possessed um, version of Christy and enacting what she would want to do, but she's helpless as a child to do these things. Oh. You know? That's, that's an interesting angle. Like she's right. sort of like, like a... So basically she offs the stepdad because he's a jerk, and then when it comes down to the end, she's like, well, Mom, you gotta be nice to me too, because I've yeah. already killed once before. And maybe maybe don't marry any jerks in the future, yeah. 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 I that that is interesting because that relates to what I was going to say. I was going to say over the progression of these, um, all of the uncanny valley creatures that we've encountered so far have been human creations, and I and I I was going to say that the talking Tina seemed like a maybe otherworldly malevolent creature. Like the mannequins were all obviously made by people. We don't know what brought them to life, but mannequins are man-made things. Um, and, you know, the dummy was uh, a it, it says outright that it uh, the Jerry created it. And, you know, of course, all the robots were created by the inventor father. But this is like this doll maybe has something living in it that, you know, wasn't supposed to be there. Um, and but that's that's an interesting theory that would bring it right in line with all of these other episodes. If it's really like the. Uh, uh, it's similar to another trope where the uh, like the imaginary friend that a child has does things for the right. child. Yeah, she could just have some uh, psychic kinetic abilities, you know, where she's she's moving this doll around on her own. Yeah, who knows? So well, now we know what the feature length film would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I wanted to talk about Telly Savalas just a little bit because um, we actually he's he's done so many things and he's 
really like if you've best known seen, as Kojak. Yeah, as Co- as Kojak from from the seventies and then some later nineties films where he plays a cop. And um, we just recently watched a nineteen eighty uh, oh, musical right. version, or nineteen eighties, not eighty um, version of Alice in Wonderland, which was really weird and really also really enjoyable. Which is for being weird is on YouTube if anyone wants to check it out. But he plays the Cheshire Cat in it and he's he's not in it a, a very ton. short role yeah like and for other versions of alice in wonderland you see the cheshire cat so much more but he's just in it a little bit but when he meets alice for the first time he says meow baby <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny because i'm looking at his imdb and on um the like promotional poster photo for kojak it says who loves you baby so i think they were just like making a joke making a about kojak that joke. but it's just such a funny of all all the Cheshire Cat performances out there, I remember seeing a 90s version with Whoopi Goldberg. Uh, she was definitely in it a lot more than he is in this version. But um, it's it's just like a really odd... I remember thinking, that's a really odd choice for the Cheshire Cat. And then he just says, meow, baby. I feel like they made him Cheshire Cat just for that line. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Someone was like, this would be great. I promise. It would be hilarious. Well, and Carol Channing is singing a song about Jam Tomorrow jam yesterday but But never jam jam today today. and then she starts buying like a sheep and looks like she's gonna eat alice it's really if you want to watch something creepy and you don't mind or you like musical song and dance numbers and it's full of 80s who's who's who 80s and 70s stars watch that it's just i think it's from 1984 or 85 but if you just you know google alice in wonderland 80s television movie it's a two-parter you'll find it good weird times anyway um did anybody else have anything they've wanted to say about, about living the inspiration doll? of chucky yeah not no i think we've we've covered just about all of it there's a really great killer doll episode of the x-files that i will recommend mm. if you like this and it's very similar to this but gorier and darker because it's you know, later television. And I believe it was written by Stephen King for them. Ah, beautiful. Yeah, it's called... Oh, what is it called? I think it's... I think the episode's called Chinga? I'm not sure. It's like, it's got a weird name, but the, the little girl's constantly playing this old record where it says, let's have fun, um... And, and then they'd play the, yeah, it's Chinga, and it's she's playing this Hokey Pokey record over and over again. And it's also awesome because Mulder makes a Chucky doll joke <laughs> during this. So um, if you like oh, wait, this. Because isn't it like it's one of the few where Mulder's the skeptic? Yeah, because he's uh, Scully's on vacation and Mulder is like hanging out at the office because he has no life. And Scully is calling in asking him questions about the history of possessed dolls and cursed objects. And then he said, is it Chucky? (laughs) (laughs) Such a good episode. And it's really creepy. And the doll is a force to be reckoned with in it. And she doesn't ever say anything like, I'm going to kill you. She just says, let's have fun. And then somebody gets brutally murdered. So Mm. that's what she does for fun. Yeah. Yeah. So it's written by Stephen King and Chris Carter. Oh, Chris. We should. We need to. We need to do another X Files episode where we cover a bunch of fun 
Yeah. You know, absolutely. Monster of the week episodes. My, my roommates have been badgering me to watch more X Files actually because we watched seasons one through five and then we couldn't find the movie forever and then we found the movie where it was but we lost our steam so we're stalled out right after the first movie. I mean, you don't need to watch the movie to continue on to season six. I mean, it's it it won't leave you. No, end. but it. And, and, I, and, I, and I know the, you know, there are split opinions about this, but I think the Mythos episodes are kind of dumb, so I don't think the movie has a huge impact on things, but, you know. it. I like some of them, but I'm honestly way, way more interested in the Monster of the Week episodes. Absolutely. I, I, I really like the X-File Monster of the Week episodes, especially when they hit their stride kind of around seasons like three and on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And like the whole like the uh, it also is like the Mulder and Scully romance thing is super forced and that doesn't do it for me, which like the movie takes a lot of. So, yeah, <laughs> they don't seem to have romantic chemistry to me. They don't. They in real life, they were so sick of each other by the time the show stopped airing the first time. <laughs> they like they could not stand each other. And it's really funny that they're trying to force this like stupid relationship between their characters when they clearly are just over it anyway well i think i think unless anybody else has anything they want to add about these episodes or the uncanny valley i'm gonna um, make a couple recommendations of more things for people to check out and then um then i think we can wrap up so uh one thing if if you liked this and you like the subject matter um, our good friends over at the Retro Movie Geek podcast a few years back for their annual Spooky Flicks Fest did um, a themed season of doll, scary doll episodes and movies. Because um, every year around Halloween time for the whole month, they do each week they cover a different movie. And it's usually within a theme. Like last year, they did werewolves. Um, they did uh, like kind of like a science fiction gone wrong kind of one the year before that and a couple years before that they did scary dolls and i believe they covered the talkie tina episode and there's an episode of um friday the 13th the series that they talked about and um it's just you know joel over there is a really really big fan of well he's creeped out by dolls and he likes tiny terrors so (laughs) if you liked this you should definitely check that out i will post a link in our show notes on the hauntedavenport.com also, a really great episode of podcasting comes from our friends over at the Sci-Fi Podcast. Early in their incarnation, right when they were first getting started, they just knocked it out of the park with this episode called More Human Than Human. And Ooh. it's very um, very philosophical, very intelligent, really great discussion, discussing a lot of what we're talking about with this episode. So I will link that as well because that's a great podcast and something I, I would definitely recommend. Um yeah, I think that's that's it as far as the subject. Uh, we did recently get a new five-star review on Apple Podcasts, so we thank listener known as Cookies BLK um, for their five-star review. It's always an honor when somebody takes the time out to actually review or recommend our podcast. That means a lot to us, so thanks for that. And uh, next time we're going to be doing our official May episode, and we usually do animation in May, and we're going to cover the uh, cartoon series from the 80s, Count Ducula. So um, Ducula. stay tuned for that. Um, I'm excited. That's something I really enjoyed as a kid. So One of the best cartoon theme songs ever. It has such good theme music, yes. Yes, it does. So um, if that sounds 
of interest to you, join us next time for some Count Decula discussion. And as always, we thank you for listening and please join us next time on the Haunted Davenport. One, two, three, four.